find ourselves in John chapter 3 this morning. So if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 3. In 2018, the Barna Group released a survey that they call the State of the Church. It's one that they often release, and they pull a random assortment of American adults in an attempt to get the pulse of faith and faith practice in our country. The results of this particular survey are rather perplexing, but they are a great indication of how Americans think and believe. In this survey, if you can believe it, they report that 74% of Americans identify as Christian. Yet, Only 57% of Americans said that they had been to church in the last six months. Only 32% of Americans would identify themselves as a practicing Christian. Now, uh, in case you're not sure what they meant by that, Barna's glossary of terms, it tells us that they define a practicing Christian as someone who identifies with a Christian denomination, who attends a worship service at least once a month, and says their faith is very important to their life. That is a practicing Christian, according to Barna. So these are very strange statistics. 74% of Americans say they're Christians, but only 32% would call themselves a practicing Christian. Barna records that 48% of Americans believe that good works result in going to heaven. So, let's keep track here. 74% of Americans say that they're Christians. 32% say that they're practicing Christians. 48% say that they believe that good works result in going to heaven. To heaven, it seems like we're a little confused. But perhaps the most bizarre statistic to me is that 33% of Americans identify as being born again Christians. So we have Christians, we have practicing Christians, and we have born again Christians. There are all of these statistics, all of these different categories, and all of them have a different number beside them. What do they mean by born again. Barna tells us that when they use the term, they mean that the person has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today, and that they believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven because they've confessed and believed in Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, how do we have 74% of Americans who identify as Christian, but 33% are born again? This leads one to ask The question, what is a Christian? Further, what is a born-again Christian? What is a practicing Christian? Is a born-again Christian some sort of upper echelon Christian who is particularly pious? Perhaps a born-again Christian is simply more committed than one who only calls themselves a Christian. 
Maybe there are different tiers and categories. You can you come into the faith as a Christian, then you're a practicing Christian, and then you graduate to born-again Christian. Well, friends, hopefully I don't have to tell you that as you read through the New Testament, you don't walk away with any adjective before Christian. There is only a Christian. You come away with the understanding that the Christian is someone who is born again. There are no distinctions between a Christian and a practicing and a born-again Christian. There are all these, no, there are only Christians who have been born again and then false professors. But what does it actually mean to be born again? Is Barna's definition sufficient? I'll remind you of it. They say that to be born again means that you have made a personal commitment to Jesus sometime in the past that is still important to you today and that you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die because you have confessed your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Is that what it means to be born again? This morning, and Lord willing, next week, we'll be looking at an incredibly important interaction between a notably religious leader and Jesus to answer this question. This interaction is between Nicodemus and Jesus, and it is such an important text for us to grasp. I mean this with all my heart, that I could not possibly overstate the importance of grasping the doctrine that Jesus lays out for us in this interaction with Nicodemus. I could not overstate it. It's that important. And it is so important, in fact, that I believe that American Christianity is as weak and cold as it is today, in part because of our misunderstanding of this doctrine. Because we, evidently, the numbers point to the fact that we don't understand what it means to be born again or a Christian. So because of this, this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus runs from chapter 3, verse 1 through, some would say, verse 15. We'll get into the details of that later. And we're going to take our sweet time working through this because it's important for us to work this out and to lay this out and to grasp it truly and fully and totally. So this morning, we're going to focus just on verses 1 through 3. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and stand. I believe over the coming weeks, we, our aim is going to be to learn of both the necessity and the nature of the new birth. Starting in verse 1, this is the word of the true and living God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I simply want to ask that you help me. This is so important, Lord, and I feel how important this is, and I just ask 
for your help. We need your help to understand this. We need your help to find comfort in this. We need your help to find, uh, to examine our own hearts to see if this text has become real to us. I pray that you would empower me and everyone in here to hear and receive your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 2. It was verses 23 through 25. And in those three verses, we talked about Jesus, uh, or John rather, summarizing the end of, of what Jesus' time in Jerusalem during Passover looked like. He said that many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus didn't believe in their belief. We took away from that passage that Jesus, as God, is all-knowing, and thus he knew very well what was in the hearts of the people who were believing in his name. Namely, he knew whether or not this belief was actually saving faith. And we learned that they had so-called sign faith. We understand that to mean that they had seen miraculous events taking place, and they were convinced of the supernatural nature of those events, but they lacked faith in the person of Christ. It's not enough to merely believe facts to be true. We must trust in the truth. Now, as we move here to chapter 3, it's important for us to know that the chapter breaks and the verses in your Bible are not inspired. What I mean by that is that when John wrote this, he didn't say, okay, here's chapter 3, verse 1. He was just writing this out. And later, some thousand years after the Bible was finished, they went in and put in the chapter breaks and verses to help us to navigate a particular book and also to help us memorize Scripture. But those are not in it originally there. And that's important for us to bear in mind here because of the nature of verse 25. Look at it with me of chapter 2. He's speaking of Jesus, that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. You see what's happening here. And then John is also talking about signs. And Nicodemus, a man who Jesus would know what is in man, he is saying, we are seeing the signs and we're believing that you are a teacher come from God. Do you see what John is doing here? I would su submit that it's best for us to see this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus as a prime example of what John was talking about in verses 23 through 25. What does it look like to only believe in signs? What does it look like? What does is, what is that kind of person talk like? And well, the first thing that we see is that he came to Jesus by night. John introduces us here to a new individual who will unwittingly serve as a witness testifying to the supernatural nature of Jesus' ministry. And we'll talk more about that later. But pay attention here to what John says about Nicodemus. We learn that he's a man, he's a Pharisee, his name is Nicodemus, 
He's a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night. I want to remind us that these are not filler words. These are important details that John is giving us. And he wants us to understand and grasp that in order to feel the impact of this interaction. Nicodemus has a very, was a very distinguished individual. He was in a place of prominence. He would have been well known, and then he would also be well known for taking the law very seriously. As a Pharisee, he would have lived in the strictest adherence to the law. Now, as we're learning in Sunday school, though, this was not a true interpretation of the law, but law plus oral tradition. The Pharisees, if you'll recall, they had elevated their own traditions and interpretations of the law to be on par with, if not greater than, what the law was actually teaching. But still, Nicodemus would have been recognized by Israelites, by other Jews, as someone who is definitely in the upper echelon of the Jewish faith. In other words, if, if anyone is righteous, if, if anyone is going to heaven, if anyone honors God and is, is close to God and has the, the favor of God on their life, it's Nicodemus. Definitely Nicodemus. John tells us that Nicodemus was a, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this doesn't mean that he was a president or a governor or something of that nature. It, what it means is the word is actually telling us that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was, you could consider it sort of like the Supreme Court of that day, of the Jewish religion. They interpreted the law and they tried cases according to the law. If you recall, in Jesus' own life, it was the Sanhedrin that Jesus was brought before, who they ultimately condemned Jesus. It was the night of his betrayal that they bring him before the Sanhedrin. In the book of Acts, Stephen, before he is stoned, he's appearing before the Sanhedrin. They played a very important role in Israel. They were highly regarded as the supreme authority in deciding matters according to the law. But as we know, given the evil they engage in, they were definitely more religious than righteous. The Sanhedrin would have been comprised of mostly Jews that were from the sect of the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a minority on the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees, as you see, Nicodemus is a part of. The Sadducees, as you might recall, they were a group of people who did not believe in the resurrection. They were anti-spiritual. They didn't believe in angels either. But they were the large majority there imparting their literalistic approach to the Scriptures. But the Pharisees were a little bit different. They were elevating their oral traditions to be on par with the Scriptures. You see, the Sanhedrin were taking what was written and being very strict to what was written, but the Pharisees were adding to it their own oral traditions and interpretations. And this is who Nicodemus was. He was a member of the group that did that. The Pharisees were definitely a minority, 
But historians say that about this time, they were starting to make progress in winning over the people. In fact, the scribes that would teach in the local synagogues, they were influenced largely by the Pharisees. So what did Jesus think about the Pharisees? We probably don't need a whole lot of time to rehash that, do we? We know that quite often in Jesus' ministry, he is condemning and outright rebuking the Pharisees. But in Matthew 23, Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks about the Pharisees. He tells them, he calls them hypocrites. Now, I know that today we use that term and it doesn't actually carry the same weight of meaning as it would if God incarnate is calling you a hypocrite. But then he explains what a hypocrite is. He says it's someone who washes the outside of the dish but leaves the inside dirty. It's someone who is much akin to a whitewashed tomb. That outside it's beautiful, but on the inside it's full of dead men's bones. He calls them serpents and a brood of vipers. Jesus issued a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. And here is one coming to him. Nicodemus is part of this hypocritical, cold, dead, lifeless, religious sect. And here he comes to Jesus by night. We don't see the blatant hostility towards Jesus on part of the Pharisees until chapter 5. But evidently, things are starting to brew, at least to some extent, because Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen publicly coming to Jesus. He's hiding in the cover of night, coming to Jesus. After all, this is the same Jesus who came into the temple and flipped over the tables and cast out the money changers. Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Believe it or not, Nicodemus is actually showing a tremendous amount of respect to Jesus. It would have been well known that Jesus was not formally trained. Rabbi, as you will recall from Jesus' own words, rabbi was a term that the Pharisees held near and dear to their hearts. They loved to be called the rabbi. They loved the places of honor. They loved public recognition. And here is Nicodemus giving Jesus, this total stranger to him, someone who is completely untrained in the law, and he's calling him rabbi. In other words, he's telling him that he's recognizing that Jesus is teaching with some level of authority. Jesus is performing acts that could only be performed if God was with him. He's recognizing the supernatural nature of what Jesus is doing. And he's witnessing the power of God himself. But what he's failing to see is that God is not merely with Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. I want you to notice that what Nicodemus is practicing here is the same kind of belief that we looked at last week. It's the same thing. He's acknowledging that Jesus came from God. He's he's acknowledging that he's a rabbi. He's acknowledging that he's doing these great, incredible things that are evidence of, of supernatural power in his ministry. But he's practicing sign faith. 
He's mesmerized, at least up to this point, by the signs themselves. He doesn't see Jesus for who he truly is. He only recognizes that the signs are evidence of the power of God. But still, enough curiosity is stirred up in this man that he decides to come to Jesus. Friends, it's better to come to Jesus at all than not at all. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night with curiosity, but not saving faith. And because Jesus doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man, for he knows what is in man, he immediately diagnoses the issue in the heart of Nicodemus. This man who is revered, who's respected, and who is likely recognized as the most righteous man, Jesus looks past all of that directly to his heart, and he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This must have been absolutely shocking to Nicodemus. No one talks to him that way. No one would speak to Nicodemus like this. And evidently, as we will see as we walk through this interaction, he had never heard this kind of teaching at all. The Pharisees, not only did they believe in the resurrection of the dead, unlike the Sadducees, but they also believed that the resurrection of eternal life was the reward for a righteous life. Sounds a lot like that statistic that I quoted earlier from Barna Group. Nicodemus would have believed that. He would have believed in coming to Jesus that he was a shoo-in. I don't, I don't know who you are, but I know that God is with you in some way. So I know you probably, maybe he thought that he was going to say some really nice stuff about Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus, you're the talk in heaven of how righteous you are. Maybe, using our imagination there. But Nicodemus would have believed at least that his own life was righteous enough to earn him the resurrection of the dead to go to eternal life. But what does Jesus say? Nicodemus, I see that you're a child of Abraham. You're a Pharisee, you're a member of the Sanhedrin. But you follow Torah, but you pray, but you make disciples, but you tithe mint and dill. But unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He begins his response here with truly, truly. In other words, it's a way of saying what I'm telling you right now is absolutely true. Believe me, it actually literally means amen, amen. This truth here, in other words, that Jesus is going to deliver is absolutely foundational and absolutely non-negotiable. Think of it, friends. Here stands the Word become flesh, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. He is saying, having come from God, being God himself. He's looking past all 
of his religion, all of his own self-righteousness. And he tells him, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. The gate to the kingdom is as tightly shut to you as it is to the atheist, to the prostitute, to the tax collector, to the Gentiles. The only way in is to be born again. Jesus is telling Nicodemus here that everything in his life up to this point is utterly useless in bringing him any closer to the kingdom of God. That is shocking. Everything that you have done, Nicodemus, you see, religion is man's best attempt to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus would have been among the best at religion. And Jesus is telling him, you, everything you've done is so useless that you need to start over. You need to just start all the way over. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't say, here's one more thing you need to do, Nicodemus. Do you know why? Because Nicodemus would have said, great. I love following rules. And he would have done it. But what he tells him is the one thing Nicodemus cannot do. He cannot make himself be born again. All of your accomplishments, all of your life of keeping the law, all of the tithing you've done, every single case that you have tried righteously according to the law as a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, is worthless. Isaiah said it this way, that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. You know, we expect something like this to be said to maybe the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. She can't hold down a husband. The man that she was living with wasn't her husband. You expect Jesus to tell someone like that, lady, you need to be born again. We expect something like this to be said maybe to the woman caught in adultery in chapter 8. You need to be born again, you adulterer. We expect Jesus to go to the man in f that was possessed by the demons, to legion. We expect him to go to them and say, you need to be born again. To Matthew, the tax collector, you need to be born again. But here he is going to the most righteous man in all of Jerusalem, probably, saying, you need to be born again. You need to start over. Nicodemus stands outside the gate to the kingdom with the pagans, with the atheists, with the idol worshipers, with the adulterers, with the homosexuals, with all the Gentiles. And the gate is as tightly locked to him as it is to them. The only way you can see the kingdom of God is by being born again. That means for you and I as well. You cannot trust in your outward religious acts. The fact that you go to church, 
You serve the church. You listen to sermons all day. You have books full of rich theology. You have the best study Bible. You go to preaching conferences. You try to be nice to people and considerate of their feelings. You're pro-life. You're this, you're that, and the other, on and on. We could go, all of it is absolutely powerless to gain you access into the kingdom of God. All of it. There are, in fact, only two kinds of people on this earth. You know who they are? Those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and those who have been born again. That's it. A person can be outwardly religious and righteous and look to you and I like a really good person where you and I would think that's someone who's going to heaven. But apart from being born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So then what does it mean to be born again? We call this the new birth, spiritual rebirth or regeneration, being born again is what makes a Christian a Christian. Can I tell you something this morning? A person is not a Christian simply because they prayed a prayer one time. We have the idea that if you pray the prayer, you're in. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus, unless you pray the prayer... You cannot see the kingdom of God. Does your Bible say that? I hope not. Nicodemus, unless you're a member at a good church, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Does it say that? I hope not. What does it say? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth is... The sovereign, supernatural work of God in the heart of a person that gives them new spiritual life and a new heart with new affections. You hear the emphasis on sovereign and supernatural and new? Regeneration is what makes you a child of God. You know, we all love 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Boy, that'll make a great t-shirt. But do you know what makes you a new creation? It's being born again. It's being born again, having regeneration. Paul is describing exactly what it means to be born again, that you are a new creation. The old passed away, the new has come. It's not merely determining to live a better life. I hear people say that. You just need to get your life together. You need to start going to church. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know what we're doing? We're saying, hey, hey, Nicodemus, here is how you can continue to be comforted in your lifestyle of self-righteousness. Here is how you can continue to be outwardly righteous, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. You just go to church. Just start listening to sermons. When we know that they're dead in their sins. But what does Jesus say? 
You must be born again. So you need to start over. You need a whole new life. You need to be made a new creation. You need a new heart. You need new affections. You need new desires. You know why? Because the desires that you have are sinful. You and I don't want Jesus on our own. You know what is the difference between saving faith and sign faith? It's whether or not you have been born again. I'll prove it to you. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 12. We already saw this. He's talking about that Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him. The world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, there it is, Matt. You just need to believe in Jesus. You just need to pray the prayer. We'll keep reading. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you know what that means? What separated those who were in the world and saw Jesus come into the world, but they didn't receive him, when the, those who were of his people and they didn't receive him either, but those who did receive him, do you know what is separating those two groups of people? Being born again. But those who did receive him are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. They were born again. They experienced the sovereign, supernatural work of God in their hearts that made them a whole new person. Because in your natural, sinful state, do you know what you want to do? You want religion. You want to go to church and to be a good person. That is the extent of what you want. You have saving faith in your natural state. You know what must happen? I must be given a new heart. I have to start over. All of my best attempts are filthy rags before God. Imagine you get a filthy rag and you go to try to clean a window. Do you, don't you know that that window will be more dirty after you're done with it than before you started? Why? Because the rag is filthy. And that is what our righteousness is before God. Our own attempts to make ourselves righteous, our own attempts at religion, our own attempts to see the kingdom of God, to pry open the gates of the kingdom of God. Do you know what it amounts to? Is nothing more than cleaning a dirty window with a dirty rag. We're worse off than when we started. It's not your family heritage. It's not being born into a Christian home. It's not being raised in church. It's not making a decision. It's not in trying really hard that makes you a child of God. What makes you a child of God is having been born of God. A person is not a child of God if they are not born of God. Question, 
What did you do to contribute to your physical birth? Think about it. You don't need to answer it out loud, but think about it. Think really hard. How many different techniques did you employ to affect your physical birth? How many different times did you try really, really hard to be born? Or is it that you did nothing at all and you were suddenly here, <laughs> inexplicably? You didn't exist as a person before and now you're here. Do you know what happened? You were born. Do you know why Jesus is using this language? Because he's saying that's what needs to happen in your spirit in your heart, you cannot affect this change. You did nothing to be born the first time. You will do nothing to be born the second time. Jesus takes this and makes it even more serious in the word play. The word in your Bible that says again, you probably have a little note in your Bible that says that the word again can also be translated above. And in fact, in this same chapter of chapter 3, it is translated above, down in verse 31. He who comes from above. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Many people have tried to nuance what Jesus is saying or in some way lighten the severity of Jesus' words. But I just so happen to believe, call me crazy, I just so happen to believe that Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said. And he knew exactly what words he was using, and he knew exactly what emphasis this was going to place in our minds, and that was the point. He meant for you to think about your first birth, to think about what it meant to, means to be born at all. And then he emphasizes it by saying, not only do you need to be born again, you need to be born from above. Think about the implications of this statement. Again, Nicodemus did nothing to cause his first birth. Imagine being Nicodemus. You're standing here in front of Jesus. You just honored him by calling him rabbi. You are distinguished. You are religious. And here Jesus is telling you, the one thing you desire is the one thing that you cannot accomplish on your own. But you need it. He says you must be born again. Jesus doesn't say, well, here's something you can try. Try being born again. He says you must be. Nicodemus needs this spiritual rebirth. And we need it. And without this spiritual rebirth we, that we cannot cause, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Well, we could spend several months talking about the different views of that. It has a wide range of application. But most likely, Jesus is referring here to the kingdom where God rules over the hearts of those who are saved. Christ rules in the hearts of those who are his salvation. You can't, can't see this kingdom. It is in the hearts. He's speaking of salvation. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the saving kingdom of God that we will belong to here and now. And we will 
enter into the full consummation of it whenever Christ returns. Then he says, cannot. This is a word that indicates ability. That without being born again, you do not have the ability to see the kingdom of God. It's not merely that it would be difficult or very challenging or strenuous, but that you do not have the ability without this rebirth. That as you stand at the gates of the kingdom of God, no amount of pulling, no amount of shouting, no tools you could try to use to open the gates would do anything to open them apart from you being reborn. You know, Fort Knox is known as the most secure place on the planet. But compared to how tightly the gates of the kingdom of God are locked to those who are not reborn, the doors of Fort Knox might as well be wide open. I love Martin Luther's account of his conversion. As you know, Martin Luther is the man that God used to spark the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther was a very religious man. He was an Augustinian monk, was a, which was a sect of monkery that was exceptionally strict. And he was a part of that. But not only that, he was also excelling in his studies, so much so that he was even teaching He had taught through several books of the Bible, all while an unsaved, professing Christian. He was not a Christian. Then he recounts going through Romans. He came across in chapter 1 that says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he talks about that he hated that passage. That he hated God. He hated it secretly. He murmured in his heart because he understood the gospel to be a threat of impending judgment and not an invitation. He said, why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice? But until one day, as he was meditating upon those words, He finally understood the good news of the gospel. Listen to what he said. Quote, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. End quote. This is a wonderful testimony of the power of God. But you know what? Martin Luther was another Nicodemus. Very religious, very learned He was a teacher of the word of God, yet even though all of that true was true of him, he wasn't born again. Here he is preparing to teach the book of Romans to students, and he is unregenerate. And it's not until God came to him and opened the eyes of his heart that he was then in that moment born again. And he said it was as though I walked through open gates, those gates to the kingdom of God. Friend, no amount of religious experience or endeavor can open those gates to you. No amount of spiritual duty, no amount of theological pursuit, no amount of doctrinal study, no amount of good deeds, nothing 
at all that a human can do, can do anything to budge the gates of the kingdom of God. Jesus stripped away every possibility of there being any hope outside of the sovereign, supernatural work of God in the rebirth. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus some 2,000 years ago, he says to everyone else, you and I included, you must be born again. An old preacher was asked one time, why do you always preach about being born again? And he responded, because you must be born again. Because you must be born again. So the question that is before us this morning is, has this happened to you? As you're here this morning, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, has this happened to you? Has this blood spilled and body broken been applied to you? Have you just gone to church all your life and just read your Bible and just said prayers that hit the ceiling? Have you just done religious stuff all your life? Or have you been born again? Have the eyes of your heart been opened? Have you been given a new nature? Have you been given new affections where you no longer desire the things you used to love and you now love the things you never used to desire? It is a supernatural work of God that causes the Christian to love the Bible. That causes the Christian to love to pray, to hate sin. That is God's work. So have you been faking it? Or has that actually happened? And you can't explain it. I couldn't tell you if I wanted to. Just suddenly it happened to me. Which one is it for you this morning? If there is a stirring in your heart, if you are noticing for the first time that you have not been born again, well, the scriptures tell us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Let's stand.